Happy Friday, everybody. It's the Informations 411, your weekly look from the reporting team at the information, at the biggest stories that we published and other items in the news that we feel fit to give our opinion on. My name is Tom Dotan. I'm one of those reporters and one of those people who unsolicited gives his opinion. Here's what we've got on tap for you this week. I am talking to Alex Heath, Hardware Heath, about Facebook and its plans with augmented reality and virtual reality. It is a much bigger bet for them than I ever would have expected uh, before reading the story. Lots and lots of employees, billions of dollars of investment, and uh, a surprising amount of success, at least in certain regards. Uh, the interesting aspect of all of this for Facebook is that they're trying to learn their lessons from mobile, in which they were slow to adopt to the new platform, and they're trying to get in as early as possible on what many people at the company, including probably Mark Zuckerberg, believe will be the next big platform shift. Uh, so Alex talked to a lot of leaders at Facebook, had some new details on companies they've tried to acquire, and uh, yeah, all of it put together is a pretty impressive investment. Although I will say I remain skeptical about uh, the possibility of AR becoming a thing. And Alex, I talk about that too. And then I'm talking to Kevin McLaughlin and Nick Bastone about Google Cloud, the internal meeting that happened in 2018 where they were trying to figure out a timeline on when they could surpass their bigger rivals, Amazon and Microsoft, and why cloud remains a sort of odd fit within the Google, uh, what do you call it? The Google city, the Google universe. Uh, so that is Kevin and Nick. Um, that's about it. Um, join me here next week as we do our year-end wrap-up podcast. That'll be a lot of fun. Uh, but for now, here's my conversation with Alex. Uh, so about five years ago, Facebook turned a lot of heads in Silicon Valley when they bought for around $2 billion Oculus. And it was this kind of moment where you realized that they had ambitions that went far outside just being a software company and a social media company and really saw something big with VR. And it's kind of been a strange thing to watch since then, but you sort of put a lot of the pieces together in this story in terms of how much investment they've made, that the fact this is still a major cost center for them and, and what hardware, VR, AR, and all of that means for the company. Um, so from like a high level perspective, what is Facebook trying to do with its hardware investments and ambitions? Yeah, so when they bought Oculus, Oculus was less than 100 employees. And you would think that given how VR has not really hit mainstream uh, since then, um, it's still a relatively niche product. You'd think that maybe they, had, they would have scaled back that investment. But to the contrary, they actually have thousands of people working in AR, VR, um, and they're getting their own dedicated campus with 4,000, you know, room for 4,000 employees next year, plus other offices. And they're spending billions of dollars a year on hardware and, and the software for the hardware. So um, I think, you know, this honestly goes up to CEO Mark Zuckerberg and his um, it's a mix of, I would say, paranoia and also um sensing some opportunity in the coming shift that will happen whenever uh, these next devices uh, eventually replace uh, the, the dominance of mobile phones. Right. So that could be, whether that's VR remains in question, um, 
but now most of Silicon Valley seems to have landed on AR, augmented reality, the, the overlaying of virtual objects onto the real world through your field of vision as this next medium. And so Facebook is very seriously working to create these AR glasses that uh, it hopes will one day, you know, be as used as, as mobile phones. And they're, they're investing in every single layer of the technology stack from chips to the OS to all of it to build it from scratch. How much of this and, do you think, yeah. but I'm sorry to cut you off there, but um, yeah. before we get into some of the specifics, um, I'd like as a bit of a history lesson to our listeners out there, Facebook was actually a little bit late in, in the mobile revolution. They kind of dropped the ball at first when people started using um, you know, Facebook on their phones. They didn't have a great business model uh, for quite some time. It was a big question when they went public. And how much of, you know, do you think that that experience and going through uh, the growing pains of becoming a mobile company uh, inform their decisions to think as early as possible about this new platform. I think it very much informs it. And you can see it all the way up to the leader they chose to run this thing, um, a veteran Facebook executive named Andrew Bosworth, known as Boz internally, who's been there for over 14 years. He's one of the most, obviously, most tenured employees of the company, a close friend of, of Zuckerberg. It goes back to Harvard, and, right? I mean, like they, they go back to the college days. They go back to the Harvard days, yeah. And, you know, it was Boz who was tasked with putting ads in the newsfeed um, on mobile when Facebook realized it needed to figure out how to monetize mobile. And they were, they barely made the shift to mobile. And it's something they've been very open about um, since then that it was an existential crisis for the company because it started as a desktop website. And I think they don't want that to happen again. And, you know, what happened is that they, 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 you know, the mobile era has worked out very well for Facebook. Yeah, that's why you can be open about it because you're, you, when you're yeah. crushing it now, it's fun to say like, oh yeah. yeah. We, so they, yeah. you know, they, they, they're sitting on $52 billion in cash. They, they make billions of dollars a year in ads off of mobile platforms. But at the end of the day, they don't control the pipes that they run on. So they don't control the phones and the operating systems. So for Apple, iOS, and Google, Android, um, that, you know, make their apps work. And that gives them a limited ability to control their own destiny. And I think that's really what a lot of this is about, is that, you know, Apple became a trillion-dollar company when um, they realized that creating fully, ver you know, integrated technology from the OS to the hardware to the chips gives you full control over the product and you can create a better product. And that's, you know, really you can chart Apple's, you know, dominance, um, really tied to that in the iPhone and how they, they doubled down on that approach. Right. And, and owning a new platform, right? I mean, that, that they, they were yeah. most successful in, in kind of becoming the dominant player for smartphones. Yeah. So I think Facebook doesn't want to have that happen again when we eventually shift from mobile to whatever is next, whether gotcha. it's a mix of wearables or glasses or what have you. Right. Okay. So, so let's go into some of the specifics here because they've made a couple of acquisitions uh, you know, they've announced a couple of acquisitions and in the story you broke news about others that they had kicked the tires yeah. on. So what was going on there? Yeah, so they, they bought a, uh, honestly, it's, I guess, a mind-reading technology startup called Control Labs that's developing an armband that they think could be an input mechanism for AR glasses one day um, for almost a billion dollars about a month or two ago. They almost bought Fitbit um, before Google, I reported about a month ago. Um, that would have been close to a $2 billion acquisition. And in this story, we broke that they actually looked at buying a, a chip maker um, called Cirrus Logic. Um, it's one of Apple's top chip suppliers. Um, 
specifically audio chips, which is interesting. And that company is worth about $4.5 billion, so it would have been at least double the Fitbit purchase. So that, I think, goes to show how large their eyes and their appetite is for hardware and for um, investing in this category, because if all those acquisitions would have come to fruition as they were bidding on all of them, you know, they would have easily been spending over, you know, 5 to $6 billion in hardware. In the right, right. Like, and, 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 like yeah, and at a time that they're getting so much government regulatory scrutiny. Um, I wonder, do they feel like hardware is just so far away from the nature of the scrutiny that they're not worried that that could raise, you know, any more alarms? It is. I don't honestly think that they're thinking about it as much as everyone in the media thinks they are. Um, I think it certainly affects, you know, we had an executive at one of our events recently say it affects how they, you know, look at buying social companies for sure, because that's the area they're already dominant in. I think this area is so unknown and it's so, you know, it's just uncharted territory that I don't think any regulator is going to know how to make sense of them buying a mind reading company that doesn't even have a product on the market yet, you know, which is honestly what happened with Oculus. The product had barely been out. It was a Kickstarter. Right. And, um, you know, fewer than 100 employees and then came in with this massive offer and it catalyzed the entire VR industry. So they have this history of coming in and betting on these early technologies before anyone really can make sense of it. Right. And and so with Oculus specifically, in, in following VR from the content side of things, I've always been underwhelmed by the businesses that have grown out of it. There's been a huge number of failures in the startup side of things with VR. Um, And, you know, I think you've seen a lot of people really write it off, uh, at least for the time being, as like a consumer consumer level device. Uh, But from what your story said, it sounds like it's actually done better than you'd expect, Oculus. I think, you know, this is all about expectations. So Facebook doesn't disclose sales of its devices. They don't disclose the revenue they make from hardware. They do say they're making, they're selling every single, you know, Oculus they can make. This new Quest headset that came out earlier in 2019 really is, you know, I've used it quite a bit. It's it's actually a good device, and it's the beginning of me being like, I could actually see myself hmm. using VR um, because it's cordless and it doesn't need a computer and it doesn't need a phone to power it. And you have a thing called Six Degrees of Freedom where you can walk freely around in a room and interact with things. And they just added hand tracking where you don't even need controllers. Your hands can interact with the environments. And that's a good example, the hand tracking, of how that technology can actually be applied to AR. So I think Facebook may actually have a heads up uh, with AR development given all the optics and tracking tech they have in VR. Mm-hmm. And they're really a leader now in VR, um, partly because other companies have moved away from the space like Google, but also because they've been continuing to invest and the tech is actually getting pretty good. So right. we may still be at like the iPhone 1.0 moment of VR with the Quest, but I think they are starting to see that this thing has you know a lot of potential runway. Right. And yet at the same time, like you say in the story, AR really is like the long-term goal for them and, and where yeah. really where, you know, they, they really have their, their hopes and dreams rested on it. And I remember in attending F8 conferences in years past, I noticed a distinct shift from them really pumping up, uh, you know, VR and the My Life world and all these things that they had thought as one of the key uh, advantages of Facebook being involved in VR to, hey, let's start getting in kind of the, the, the selfie masks game and, um, you know, how can, what can AR do for you? So, I mean, what has it meant mm-hmm. inside Facebook for AR to suddenly become, not suddenly, but to over time become uh, the, the sort of top priority when it comes to hardware? 
It's definitely been a shift in the last couple of years. I mean, the organization is called ARVR, not VRAR. I mean, I think that's, you know, a name is a name, but it kind of says everything about where their priorities lie. They have hundreds of people devoted to building these glasses on top of the thousands of dedicated engineers that this organization has. Um, and it's an area that Mark Zuckerberg spends a lot of time. He meets with Boz, you know, regularly every week to review this stuff. He's very keenly interested in this. And again, this all goes back to, can we control our own platform in the coming shift in computing? Can we not have to go through what we went through with mobile? I mean, I think an interesting example of this is, you know, astute information readers might remember earlier this year when Apple actually um, caused all of Facebook's internal apps to just shut down um, because Facebook abused one of Apple's policies and with regards to how they distribute their apps. And so all of a sudden, every single Facebook employee couldn't access their internal apps on iPhones and Apple devices. And that, I think, is an example of the power dynamics at play here, where they really are um, at the whims of these other companies with regards to the current tech platforms. Which is insane, by the way, for like a multi-hundred billion dollar company to have another trillion dollar company flip a switch and suddenly your employees are offline. I mean, that's just not a great place for you to be. Right. And it's a small example, but it's an indicative one of of where their, where their eyes are, you know, set in the future. And, you know, they, we should not, you know, forget to note, they actually tried to make a phone even before they bought Oculus, um, with, uh, HTC, um, and they ended up building it on Android but, and it didn't work. Right. Huge flop, huge flop. Yeah. So this time they're going to build the entire software stack. They actually have co-author of the very early version of windows NT, um, who's a, you know, star Microsoft, former Microsoft engineer, um, leading a group that is building an operating system from scratch, which is a big deal because, um, you know, most devices run on some fork of Android, um, that aren't Apple made. And, you know, this is like the fundamental, like railroad, uh, that all this stuff gets built on and they're, they're going to build that themselves. It's a huge undertaking. Yeah. So uh, maybe broadening out a bit. No, let's stick with Facebook. And then I do want to ask a broader question for you. So, I mean, as you kind of came to Facebook, you know, with this story, they put a lot of people on the record for it, which sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, uh, you know, they'll be a bit closer to the vest uh, over certainly other areas of their business. I mean, what was sort of your uh, experience with Facebook? It seemed like they really wanted to get at least part of this out there. I'm sure they weren't thrilled about the deals that you scooped, but, you know, they seem to really want to get out there that they are making these investments and these are the executives in charge with it. And, you know, we, we, we think we're a major player in the space. Look, I think everyone in the industry is skeptical of Facebook in this regard because they do have this really spotty track record with privacy and with data collection and just their reputation in general is is not great in the Valley. And so, you know, I'm sure it's a recruiting, you know, challenge in some aspects to get someone who, say, has worked at Apple for 10 years to, you know, go, am I going to go to an ad software company to try to build hardware? Um, you know, they are, are still, you know, even though they are, you know, a massive company and underdog in this race, because mm. Apple is also working on similar efforts. So, um, you know, I think uh, this is something they want to be very out there about, because it is something that is, you know, so uh, close to, to what Zuckerberg is, is, is wanting the company to do. And it's also a, a challenge for them in the current environment. Right. Okay. So this now here at the end of the year, um, you have written a number of stories uh, about AR and the various major companies that have been investing heavily into it. And so we know already that Apple has pushed back their timeline just a little bit uh, for their various AR products. The same year as, as Facebook's goal, right. interestingly enough. Yeah. So there's that. Magic Leap, as you uh, reported the other week, is... Uh, 
not selling a lot of these devices, you know, having all kinds of problems, needing to raise more money, uh, on and on and on. And then here we have Facebook with, you know, what they're trying to do. I mean, realistically, when are you expecting this to start being a meaningful business platform, anything in which we should, from a broader perspective, care about? Uh, I mean, how, so, what are we looking yeah. at? I think we're going to see the first devices that maybe like not the iPhone moment, but maybe like the BlackBerry moment where like people start using phones in a different way. And now people will start using these devices uh, in probably three ish years. Apple, Facebook, they'll have timelines of about 2023 for releasing the first classes. Um, and I think within five years, you're going to see definitely the early adopter crowd, the average information <coughs> subscriber, but also, you know, I hate using this term, but like knowledge workers, you know, people who work in offices and people who, um, you know, are, are a little more tech savvy you starting to use these devices. Knowledge workers. Yeah, I, I think I think within five years um, and that's something that, you know, Facebook executives told me repeatedly. They think this is all coming within that time frame because the technology is actually going to be solvable by then. We have, there's a, there's several key hurdles that need to be overcome, but by then we should, we should be there. Yeah. Do you worry at all? And I guess by extension to the people you talk to worry that this could all be a giant boondoggle that we may be <laughs> actually years and years. Look, this is coming from my personal opinion, perhaps yeah. uh, that we could be years and years away from this further than, than we had initially thought. And similar to self-driving, which has huge amount of promise, but unbelievable technical hurdles that this could be more than a decade or two away from something that people really expect. Maybe the, the, the comparing it to self-driving is interesting. I don't think it's quite fair because self-driving requires just a massive infrastructure shift uh, at everything from the city planning level to um, the government level to it's much bigger. Also than the just, stakes are much higher. I mean, the I, stakes I, I are much higher. That. Lives, lives are at stake. Um, look, I think you already see products on the market. Um, you know, even like Snap Spectacles for all the knocks they've gotten, you know, the newest ones have um, a form of AR in, in the lenses and they're kind of fun. Like you can make really cool effects um, and see whales, you know, floating in the sky around you as you look around. Like this technology is already like in its beta infancy, infancy stages, you know, out there. People can use it. Um, and yeah, I guess it could all go up in smoke, but, right. uh, it would be one of the biggest like misses, like collective misses in Silicon Valley. It's just kind of remarkable that all the, you know, smartest people I talk to in the Valley, they all think that this is where things are headed. Yeah. And, uh, it's all about tech becoming more intimate and more closer to us as human beings. Like our phones are on our, in our hands and like eventually it'll be on our faces and then in our brains and, Oh, God, who knows? What? Who knows? Yeah, I'll never forget uh, a Facebook employee one time telling me very off the cuff that like, well, you know, really all of this isn't that meaningful because at some point we're just going to hack the ocular nerve and uh, we'll just be able to right. overlay well, stuff in our brains. Wants to do. Yeah, yeah, great. Cool. <laughs> Happy holidays. Yeah, exactly. Um, look, look forward to that in 2023. Um, we're all just uh, Black Mirror episodes. Um all right, Heath, uh, good, good talking as always. Have a good holiday, yeah, and uh, we'll uh, check in with you again in the new year. All right, take care. So in 2018, a lot of the top executives at Google have a meeting in which they discuss the future of cloud this uh, cloud providing arm of uh, cloud services providing arm of Google that has remained uh, a third tier or, or sort of in third place of all of the the major cloud service providers what was the nature of this meeting and and you know what came out of it 
So our understanding is that it took place at some point towards the end of Diane Green's tenure at Google, which would have been mid-2018. Um, I think that the piece of what we reported that is getting the most attention, obviously, is that in this meeting with Alphabet senior leadership, the idea of exiting the cloud market was discussed and then dismissed. I think uh, generally, from what I see on Twitter, the part where we said was dismissed uh, has been lost on some people. Uh, I think it's important for us to kind of say that uh, our understanding is that not, not that Google Cloud is going to quit the cloud computing business. Uh, if Thomas Korean does not hit the targets that have been set for him by 2023, uh, it is very likely that Alphabet could revisit its strategy on the cloud. But, you know, I, I think it's really important. Google like, could. Yeah, I mean, I don't get the sense that Google Cloud is going to get out of the cloud market. But the fact that this idea was raised definitely is important. And I think that you know, I've seen some arguments that, well, any, any large company is going to assess all of its options on the table. I just have a hard time thinking that Microsoft or uh, Amazon Web Services have ever floated the idea of getting out of the cloud, cloud right. market. Right. right. And, and Google, you know, didn't dismiss. I, we reported a 2023 sort of uh, timeline uh, to be either number one or two. Um, and, you know, we didn't receive pushback on that. And again, like Kevin said, we didn't say, you know, uh, after 2023 that Google is going to, you know, get out of the market. What we said was if they're not one or two, um, you know, uh, they, they could reassess their investment. And, and the idea uh, from people that we talked with was, you know, maybe this sort of all in uh, green light that they've had in terms of, of, of budget as of late. Um, that might uh, might fade if, if they haven't reached their goals. Let's maybe get a bit of a history lesson here with Google and their involvement in cloud because they're a bit of a latecomer, right? I mean, Amazon has been in it. They've more or less invented the category, this idea of the public cloud, and Microsoft has, you know, it's it's their business. You know, they, they, they really don't have a second thing to, to lean back onto, so there's a reason for it to be a major thing. But for Google, obviously, they're a giant fountain of cash sprinkling all over Mountain View uh, coming from search ads. So. Why uh, is why is Google in the cloud business? Why did they decide to get into it? And uh, what <laughs> what's the reason that they think they can actually make it to number one or number two? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Google's been in the cloud market for a lot longer, I think, than people realize. They launched uh, App Engine, which was one of their first uh, services for developing applications that run on the cloud uh, a decade ago or in 2008. And uh, Google Apps has been around as well for a long time. So what's important is that they had those products, but there wasn't an organizational senior level commitment until about 2014 when um, that's when they kind of said, okay, you know, we're going to establish ourselves in the cloud market and eventually challenge the leaders. And so you could say that 2014 was kind of the rebirth, if you will, of Google Cloud. Gotcha. Okay. And for them, it's like, it's a huge, you know, business opportunity. Like, like you said, they rely so heavily on, on ads. Um, you know, cloud represents like a legitimate, uh, you know, uh, revenue maker for them where some of these other projects that they have in the works, like, uh, you know, Waymo or, you know, a drone delivery service, like that might be further off, but, you know, cloud is, is is something tangible it's here, here. here it's now. it are it already makes huge amounts of money for for amazon and for right. microsoft and so why not us right um how did it end up though since they have been in it for so long that they tend to lag the competitors by it sounds like a pretty significant margin there are a lot of theories for why that's the case but one of them 
was that uh, Google did not have the enterprise DNA, the, the experienced salespeople and marketing people who have worked at other old guard companies as well as other cloud providers. That's something that Diane Green made progress on fixing or addressing. Uh, she hired lots of people from VMware, companies like Oracle, uh, across the spectrum of enterprise. There's, there's a lot of institutional knowledge about how to sell to large companies now inside Google Cloud. But the actual execution now is, is the issue. Like, and also, um, some of the people that she brought in left after she left. Right, it's were, a bit of a revolving door yeah. over there. So what, what do you think about this timeline, though? I mean, what could they honestly do to unseat someone like a Microsoft? I mean, it sounds kind of insane to me. It's sort of like, you know, I don't know, Walmart, which I'm sure they do think in some off, you know, quiet corner being like, we got to topple Amazon. We got to be the number one, you know, online retailer. I mean, is this kind of thing realistic? And, and how can they go about cutting into what seems like such an insurmountable lead? Well, I would say that without making a major acquisition, it's really, really hard to envision Thomas Kareen hitting number one or number two in the market by in five years. It's just, it's almost ludicrous given current growth rates to, to imagine that. I mean, AWS just had its reInvent conference. It announced a bunch of new services and really it was kind of like a demonstration of like how far ahead they are. Microsoft obviously has emerged as the number two. Uh, a lot of momentum and Microsoft also has a number of levers that it can pull to, to grow its cloud business like bundling cloud services into agreements with companies, long-term licensing agreements with companies that also buy data center software. Um, Google doesn't really have those things, so it would have to be an acquisition in my opinion. Right, right. Within Google, what, what, are, what are the thoughts? I mean, other, other areas of the company, how do they feel about the cloud computing unit? Is it kind of a point of frustration that it's gotten so much investment and you know, remains a third place, which something Google is not really accustomed to given their dominance in almost every other Google-like area that they're a part of, maps or search or you know, double-click, those kinds of things? Right. I think I think like Kevin said, I think the switch, you know, to enterprise is is something new for them. I mean, they have a massive sales team for ads, but they're not used to these like, you know, huge investments or these huge sales cycles. So just the it's culturally it's different. Um, we spoke to some people on the uh, um, uh, G Suite side, which is still a part, you know, under the Google Cloud umbrella. Um, and a lot of uh, them were sort of frustrated with the direction of uh, that org where, um, you know, before, you know, Gmail became Gmail because it was a, a, a consumer product. Um, and now a lot that team is pretty much primarily focused um, on building for the enterprise. So you, you, you can see some frustrations in those teams where um, the, they're, they're building for an enterprise uh, uh uh, company in mind rather than a consumer, and that's a, that's a shift, and 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 that's caused some frustration. Now they're bringing more people in, and maybe they're those people are happy to build for enterprise, um, but you know the the people that have been there for a while are used to a, more of a consumer focus. Gotcha. Um, and you mentioned a bit at the opening part of this conversation that there's been quite a bit of reaction on Twitter from the company at all uh, about the story. So. You mentioned already that, you know, to be very clear, we're never suggesting that Google is going to leave the cloud business, only that it could fundamentally change its, its structure and approach. I mean, what else kind of about the aftermath of this story coming out and the reactions to it did you, did you find interesting and, and worth kind of commenting on? Well, look, I mean, Google has a track record now of killing off products, in some cases, products that people liked with very little warning. 
And so this is Google a, Reader, RIP. Exactly. This perception is earned. And so when our story landed, it was I'm not surprised that people sort of jumped to that conclusion that, oh, well, Google yet another. Right. Yeah. Here comes, you know, Grim Reaper, Sergey and, and not Sergey, uh, Sundar to kill off another thing we thought we liked. Right. And I think that that is largely what fueled the reaction on Twitter. OK. And so in, in closing here, if Google is going to, as it seems, uh, double down, invest heavily, whatever it is to try to reach this mark. I mean, what are the big questions that they need to answer uh, to prove that they can truly uh, grow their, you know, their share of the pie in cloud? The question I have is what business problem can Google, so Google Cloud solve for Alphabet? Because if you look at the success of AWS, it really started with Amazon, which had a computing problem that it needed to solve. It formed AWS. Then it realized other companies wanted these services too. Uh, Microsoft got into the cloud business because it had to, because that was its core business and it didn't have another business that it was running at the time. So it's a little different. Uh, is, is our Alphabet units using Google Cloud? Are they going to use Google Cloud? Is Google Cloud part of the fabric of the computing and engineering culture at Alphabet? Um, if it becomes that, then think we'll be having a different discussion in five years. Right. And they still have to prove that. Yeah. And I think a big open question, too, is like, if you're not number one or two, you know, can you still be profitable? I think there's a theory out there that you need to be a top player. Uh, you need to reach a certain scale in order for, um, you know, this thing to be profitable. Um, you know, if that's if that's really the case, you know, we'll, we'll find out. But um, yeah, and, and you know, basically, it's like, how's Google going to make money from this? They have um, other products coming out, like Stadia, which is a, a, a gaming um, service that's that's running over the cloud, and maybe that's you know going to generate some, sure. some revenue for them. But it's like, how is this thing going to make money? Because yeah. ultimately, that's that's what they need is they need something, they need another revenue stream besides ads that's going to be making money for them. Yeah. All right. Well, pressure's on cloud. Uh, thanks for joining, guys. Thanks. Yeah, thanks.